You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. No idea grows from mewling striped cum to teeth at your throat and tiger without a little help, some guidance, and a whole lot of love along the way. I'm Jaren Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Back in 2015, before Here Be Tigers was ever named to this show, I started jam sessions as a sort of informal chat with folks about who they are, what they do, and where they wanted to go. Eddie was gracious enough to be our first guest, and to this day I remain grateful to him for helping me onto a path where I could do the work that I love with people I know. So here's one last look to the past before we return September with a new episode on world-building currencies and the things that we value most. I hope you enjoy. Eddie, how did you begin that? Did you find yourself working at this when you first went to school, when you first went to college, or is this something you grew into? so much for having me on your show. It's interesting that I did not grow up with this on my uh, vision board. (laughs) (laughs) Understandable. I grew up in a small town called East Chicago, Indiana. And, you know, I grew up with uh, a family that was uh, basically everyone went from high school into the steel mills. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really envision that I would do much more than that. But along the way, I discovered that I had a love for computers and my dad would always say to me, well, if you, love, if you love computers, don't be the guy that goes and learns how to work a computer. Be the guy that goes and learns how to build the computer. And so initially, I did nothing with leadership development and the things that you just listed. I went to school and became a computer system specialist. That's what the diploma said when I graduated. <laughs> okay. When he said build the computer... Was he trying to get you to understand that you had to dig into the systems, the concepts, the processes that led to the development of technology and that, in his mind, that's where career and your future would lie? Indeed. So in the steel mills, one of the things that was very common is people would often experience layoffs Mm -hmm. and they would be seasonal in many cases. And so he felt that just being a person that had uh, academic knowledge or that could uh, be a operator made you disposable. Mm. Uh, it was the person that knew how to go deeper, that did know how to build, to construct, that would have more longevity. Hence, uh, he wanted me to learn how to build the computer. And of course, along with that would come the uh, capacity for knowing how to operate it and how to run it. And so uh, the school that I enrolled in, right after high school, I took a 10-month program. I didn't even get a degree. Uh, but my 10-month program led me to uh, become a computer system specialist. And mm-hmm. as a part of that, we built the computers. We learned coding, programming, networking, mm-hmm. and, uh, of course, the support that comes along with that. And so and for many years, probably about uh, 12, 15 years, that was my career, information technology specialist who supported information. Uh, professional corporations as an IT professional. Mm -hmm. 
What would you say were the most important skills or abilities you gleaned from those 10 months of working in that? It was a vocational school, effectively, right? It was uh, Robert Morris College was the name of it. And so Robert Morris College, which today is Robert Morris University, Mm -hmm. they've grown. um, When I was there, I don't remember how many diploma programs they offered, but they offered several 10-month diploma programs and only one degree. And the degree would have been in accounting. (laughs) Uh, a bachelor's in accounting Mm. so today they're a full-scale university that's doing very well in Mm -hmm. chicago and they offer many degree programs in fact i haven't looked in a long time but i'm not even sure they even offer those diplomas anymore i think they (laughs) all are associate degrees and higher now Mm -hmm. so and that's with the changing of the times right more and more people are demanding a degree uh the interesting thing that happened in it is when i came out of uh school there and now I date myself and tell my age, the computer revolution was kind of just starting. Mm-hmm. Windows 95 hadn't even been released. We were still using right. Windows 3.1. <laughs> and then along with Windows 95 came this beautiful thing called certification. When I started, you literally could show up at a company and say, I know how to fix computers, and you would get hired. There's- and you would get paid a very nice salary. And then all of a sudden, one day, people started realizing, wait a minute, even for our, our plumbers and our mechanics, we require a certain level of demonstrated competency that has been verified independently by a third party. Yes. Shouldn't we do the same with computer professionals? So they did. And so the big thing became a Microsoft certification. And if you had a Microsoft certification, at one point, you could literally call your price name your price, go down the street, and you would be paid a lot more money. Uh, as a result, many of us change jobs every year. I didn't keep a job beyond 12 months for the first probably <laughs> of my career. There was, a, there was a rapid growth in organizations and industries that would provide these certified experts that would train them. And I, I recall, I mean, I was a kid in the computer industry. My dad worked in MetLife. My mom worked at, at IBM. So I was one of those kids that was dragged into Test OS2 Warp and Prodigy and all the others. But it was phenomenal when this became something that you could look at as a career, as a thing you could specialize in and say you had this, this at the time, esoteric knowledge of how to operate. Absolutely. And so uh, it became to your point with the proliferation of people offering these certifications, there became a proliferation of also people getting those certifications. And so it became a watered-down uh, credential, so mm-hmm. much so that, that the phrase paper MCSE was born, <laughs> paper Microsoft Certified Systems Engineer. And so the reality was, in many cases, people learned how to pass the exam, but then they'd show up on the job site and not have the competency to perform. So... There went that uh, credential and the, the, the corresponding pay that went with it. So people then started to make the shift back. Initially, there was like there was this attitude that, I don't care if you have a degree, do you have a certification? Mm-hmm. And for many years, that persisted. Then things shifted back from, well, we really think certifications are nice, but where's your degree? More and more, businesses started to demand a higher level of professionalism mm. from their information technology professionals and not to just be technically competent. Would you say that was an essential part regardless of – because in a sense, the technology was outstripping the processes and, and systems laid in place to teach you how to use it. But that ability to act and be professional for how to navigate and work with people collaboratively to accomplish a goal. Did you find that was something instilled to you in the universities and then reinforced as you were in the workforce? That was not something that was really addressed. It was about getting your technical skills and your competencies uh, that related to 
uh, performance as a technology professional at Robert Morris College, which did a great job training me. Uh, I landed uh, uh, my next job because of that training. Mm -hmm. And so I was very successful as an information technology specialist because of that. But I would say that my greater success led to the soft skills I had that came much earlier in my life uh, outside of that realm. Uh, for that, I give my mother and father tremendous credit for it, and also my religious uh, upbringing. So what I started to realize is that I was combining, um, and it wasn't that I had this, uh, I had written this down any place, but this epiphany hit me. I was combining soft skills with technical skills, mm. and that was creating entry for me into the executive suite. And so even as a technology professional, from my very first role, at Fortune 500 firms, mm -hmm. I was supporting executives. I was in the C-suite, as people would call it. And so that was my personal experience. But I think overall, I saw in the information technology field, this greater accent being put on just not the ability to be a technical professional, but to truly be a professional in all senses uh, of the word professional. When we first met, which incidentally was at the C-suite network conference, I believe, right? It was. Yeah, in December. You said to me that people tend to take gray hair less seriously in tech, but more so in leadership. Yes. <laughs> so as I started to, to uh, age, <laughs> scary word to use, right? I'm still pretty young. Mature, but, accrue wisdom. <laughs> I realized something very interesting was happening. And again, this is not something that I put a... a a label on, sure. but now I know what the label is, right? We now know this whole idea around the, the work of generations. As we start to see millennials come into the workplace, uh, the skills I had in IT were no longer considered a premium skill mm -hmm. because here came these digital natives, people who've always had technology. They didn't have to learn technology. When I started in corporate America, there were still typewriters, and I don't mean the electric ones. <laughs> yes. There were still manual typewriters in some offices, right? Oh, yeah. And so the electric typewriter or the word processor was a cool piece of technology. But uh, so the shift, I remember when, when Windows 95 launched, we decided we were going to put one in the hand of every partner of the firm I was with at the time. Mm -hmm. That was revolutionary. Nobody was doing that. These were the days where the senior executives – or even managers at the first level had secretaries. These secretaries yes. typed everything for them. They weren't required to know these things. Did it feel empowering for them when they suddenly had the ability to take what they were trying to do and make it appear on the screen without an intermediary? Uh, not for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I mean, I, I asked this. My, my for father some, is... For some, for some, they felt that way. But I think for others, it was still this resistance to change. Yes. My, I ask because my father is in his 80s now, but he likes to recant story or recall stories of when they brought the first computers in, from the, the original refrigerated room computers down to eventually the personal ones. And the early, this was in the frontier, I suppose you could say, when you had to learn not to share logins and give people the access to wipe your files or to share floppy disks for fear that your work could be erased or changed accidentally. But it's a... He was oddly enough then an early adopter, but yeah, it's a it's a strange and foreign thing thing because you don't know how it works internally, just that it does what you hope it should do and saves the work afterwards. And for people accustomed to having someone else human manage that interaction, that relationship, and be able to inquire from them, is this what you meant? Is this what you said? And clarify. 
it must have been alienating or really or incredibly foreign, I guess. It was certainly a change management case study. <laughs> and by the way, you used the phrase floppy disk uh, for those who might listen to this and not know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> to age myself now, yes. Right? You and I know exactly what that means. They literally were floppy at one point. Yeah. They were five and a quarter, I believe, and then they went to three and a half. We thought, how cool is this? It's actually hard. You can actually put it in your back pocket. It takes up the entire back pocket, but hey, it works. Storage right? capacity of what? 10 megabytes? <laughs> Oh my goodness! No, it was actually 1.44 megabytes. That's right. That's right. That's how, and it's scary. That I still remember those numbers. But that's how uh, that's how much capacity it was. Mm-hmm. So that uh, is quite a change. So as these younger individuals entered the workforce, they came in knowing how to use their computers. They came in knowing how to uh, do networking and many of these other tasks and skills that were once considered sophisticated mm-hmm. were now considered. You know, mundane. They were everyday uh, skills that were not only uh, not fancy or special, but requisites to doing the job. So that meant that there was not a premium on being an IT professional at certain levels. And so that skill set just didn't have the demand. And that is where the ideal of seeing, uh, you know, the gray hair in, 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 my, in my role, I saw, I saw that it was considered that you may not be as quick and you may not be as uh, competent as a younger worker. Mm-hmm. But then I looked over across the aisle and I started to notice that there were areas where it was valued. Mm-hmm. And I met a, a gentleman who became my mentor and he would all, he would say to me, my gray hair opens doors for you. <laughs> and I thought, Hmm, he's absolutely right. And so in the work that I did become uh, involved in around leadership development, learning and talent management, mm-hmm. uh, certainly uh, the gray hair was more so equated with wisdom, mm-hmm. with experience, with knowledge, as opposed to in the technical aspects, uh, someone who may not be quite as uh, savvy with the technology. In a sense, the gray hair suggested that you had not only acquired the soft skills, but refined and honed them. Yes. How did you meet your mentor? What was the what was that initial encounter or the context for it? Interestingly, I as I saw this transformation happening in the workplace, one of my mentors at GE, General Electric, where I worked at the time, uh, suggested that I go and finish my degree. Okay. He said, Eddie, we'd love to do more with you. We love the work that you're doing, but without a degree, we're limited as to where we can place you in the organization. And so initially, I thought I would just finish it at the local community college, uh, Mm. much like I had done at Robert Morris. But he said to me, no, I want you to go to a top school. I want you to think about, at the time, University of Chicago was in the area of Northwestern. In the end, I settled on Northwestern. And that ended up being one of the most important decisions I made in my life and in my career. I enrolled at Northwestern in 2006, finished in 2010. In 2006, I met, or maybe 2007, I met Bob Dean. He came as a guest lecturer to our university uh, in uh, one of the courses I was taking. Mm-hmm. And I was fascinated by the things he discussed with our class. And afterwards, I sent him an email saying, thank you, Mr. Dean. Appreciate you speaking to our class. I was really intrigued by, and I listed the things that he said that I was intrigued by. And he invited me for coffee. And I thought, oh, well, I wasn't expecting that. 
I uh, accepted his invitation. We met for coffee. We had coffee a couple of times over a series of months. Later on, we began moving from a mentor-mentee relationship to a consulting relationship. Okay. We hired to as a consultant to do some work for his firm. And what led to that transition in the relationship to you bringing value in? Because he had said to you that his hair opened the doors, but what did you bring to that dynamic that he saw in you as so meaningful or purposeful? Interesting question. Thank you. Yeah, that's uh, uh, what took place is a couple of things. Number one, uh, in 2007, December, I was laid off from my role there at General Electric. And at first, it was I was feeling I'd never been laid off before. Mm. You know, earlier, as I mentioned, I'd always change jobs every year. At GE, I was there in year number eight and a half, going on nine years. And I was very happy with my career. And I thought, wow, you know, I had high reviews. Why am I losing my job? Well, in hindsight, I now know it was the start of the financial recession. And I was working for GE Capital, the financial services division of GE. Yep. So uh, <laughs> I got over that. A couple <laughs> mm-hmm. months later, uh, after one of our coffee discussions, uh, Bob had just seen a major product that he would have wanted to test at his uh, firm. And that product would require someone with technical expertise. He had a staff of learning and talent development professionals who were at the top of their game, but they didn't have the technical experience to implement what he wanted to implement. So he brought me in for a four-week trial to see what I could do. Well, that four-week trial turned into one of the best years of my life. We did some phenomenal work around innovation in the learning space, and I brought my technical skills to the for in that role. And that's where we combine my technical expertise with his wisdom. And he taught me the business of learning and talent management. And then that ended mm-hmm. up opening other doors because I ended up working one-on-one with the CEO of that firm and one-on-one with that CEO on a couple of different uh, levels. And it was another level of growth for me and another continuation of my role of working with executives. But this was unique because I shifted from working with executives as an IT professional to now working with executives as a learning professional. And so for me, that was a nice shift to be able to make. What is the Geekly Oddcast? It's a panel show of television. I mean, seriously, where else was I supposed to go and watch Gomez Adams ride a rocket ship on a railroad track? Gaming. And the dice say... 17. Oh my god, 17 is Mystic Quest. And whatever comes to mind. Why does Zod need a starship? Alternating Thursdays on The Geekly Oddcast. In a sense, less of a support role and more of a mentor to your peers. That was the first shift. Yes, I would say that was the first shift. And at the time, I was introduced to a man named Andrew Sobel, who's written quite extensively. He's written about four books now, maybe five. Mm -hmm. And he's one of the thought leaders who I pattern myself after. In fact, I call myself a deep generalist and a specialist because of his work. And that was his phrase. And Andrew Sobel used the phrase becoming a trusted advisor to the C-suite. And so in listening to Andrew Sobel, listening to Bob Dean as my mentor, Mm -hmm. I was given a role to be a trusted advisor in a unique sense to a C-level officer of the firm. So I'm not the person helping them make business decisions. 
obviously, but a person helping them to see where they can uniquely use technology and certain other aspects of learning in their work as a business leader. It's an interesting choice, the phrase trusted advisor, because it puts you on an equal level. It also connotes the type of relationship you'll have with them and how deeply they value it. Indeed, it does. And so that led to uh, another project later on down the line where Bob and I collaborated. And that's where this phrase uh, facilitated collaboration was kind of born because it made me realize that this unique ability to facilitate, to collaborate with executives, it put, it changed everything. In fact, that's the subtitle of the book, Leadership That Changes Everything, mm. because you become a leader in a different context. Not a leader that I have the similar title as that executive, but a leader that they are now looking at me as the trusted advisor, as a leader to guide them in a specific area where I have deep expertise that they can benefit from. Would you define a leader as someone who guides, regardless of title or actual designated role, but the purpose of a leader is someone to guide. That is certainly one definition. Okay. Uh, the, obviously, the, 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 the work in the area of leadership is uh, quite exhaustive. Certainly. Everyone has a definition, everyone has a framework, but that is absolutely one of the definitions I subscribe to, uh, a guide or a, an influencer. Okay. And an influencer, not always over others who you have control over, Many times, leadership is the ability to actually influence those who you do not have control over. And that, quite frankly, is a more difficult aspect of leadership to master and to exercise. Could you walk us through an example of how you did that or when you struggled with it? Sure. So one example of that would be perhaps a project that I did at uh, my last firm. It was a Fortune 500 firm, and this Fortune 500 firm was in an industry that I'd never worked in and a state I'd never lived in. One Mm -hmm. of the things I learned is when I moved from Chicago to Texas, Texas has its own operating model. Yes, (laughs) yes. Uh, My friends who uh, took me under their wing quickly told me, that I am living in the United States of Texas, essentially, and I had to <laughs> learn how to comport myself. Mm-hmm. So uh, to work in an industry in Texas, in oil and gas, it was a it was something that an outsider coming into the organization working it was a big deal. But then to go from an outsider outside of the state, outside of the industry, to now trying to introduce new innovations that I was trying to introduce, it was just seen as Uh, It was unheard of. It was like, what is this guy doing? Who's allowing this? (laughs) (laughs) So the innovation that I introduced was this ability to run meetings globally Mm -hmm. using a uh, technology platform that I brought to the organization. And uh, the ideal is to not just use it to change everyday meetings. But high-level meetings. So not necessarily worried about the meetings we run with our Monday morning staff at 9 a.m., right? It was the idea of here are high-level business-level meetings where strategic thinking is involved, planning, uh, issue resolution. When these things need to be done at a high level, there's a better way to run them than that. what was being done before I arrived. And so uh, to introduce that model, that framework that I brought with me, I needed to exercise this leadership, this influence over the 
IT department for starters mm-hmm. because IT likes to control the keys to the kingdom. And so when you tell IT people you want to introduce a new platform, they feel like it's a threat to uh, the stability of the infrastructure they have in place. So you are introducing a potential virus or alien threat to the system they have made stable and secure. Precisely. And so I have to go through the exercise of convincing them that uh, and this is where my technology background comes in very handy, being able to speak the IT speak to the IT professionals uh, that I understand what I'm doing and the ramifications of what I'm introducing will have on the platform, on the uh, infrastructure and how what I'm doing actually coincides with the infrastructure. Also that you understand their need for testing and vetting it and that that is typically longer and more thorough and intense than would be expected. Precisely. And then the area of uh, understanding how to work with the, the financial folks who are I'm asking to make the procurement decision. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, my own layers of management before we even go outside to those areas, convincing my management that this is what we need. And I literally bet the farm on what I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. I, I essentially told the gentleman who hired me and brought me in, I said, you brought me here to lead change, to be innovative. I said, this will change this firm. And I am so convinced of it. I will purchase the product myself. All I need you to do is to give me your blessing, tell IT to work with me. I will make it happen. And what was the response? Well, uh, the director who I said this to, (laughs) he looked at me with this look of shock. (laughs) And he says, okay, you got it. I'll let you do it. I'll tell IT to support you. And he said that, uh, by the way, you don't have to buy it. I'll pay for it. Hmm. So we did it. And as I had experienced uh, at the other firm where I introduced this at, it produced exactly the effect that I knew it would have. We ran one successful program, word spread like wildfire, and then it led to other successful programs um, throughout the firm. Now, the area where change happens is as you first people ask you why you want to do something then they ask you wow how did you do it this became so successful that a lot of the resistance i was getting it began to fall because people saw the results and then they saw of course what matters most the financial ramifications that Mm -hmm. i was having once you have a proven model with results then people are more willing to line up to do the same indeed so then the big moment of clarification. The big uh, proving point came when one day I got a phone call from one of the senior leaders. Mm-hmm. The senior leader wanted to know my availability to meet with him. And I said, sure. <laughs> right <I can> now. <laughs> Immediately. So the meeting was set for the following week. And then I go to my boss and I say, hey, listen, I just got a call from Shares the name of the individual. I said, are you aware of that? He said, yeah, I know. He asked me before he called you. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, super. I said, I got the meeting invite. Do you know who else is involved in that meeting? He said, yeah, I know. <laughs> the other person involved in the meeting was the CEO. Yes. And so I said to him, I said, okay. He says, I know that you will, you will handle it appropriately. You know what to do. And so I went. I had the meeting the following week. And essentially, the CEO said to me, Eddie, I have a problem. We are being faced at the time of oil and gas, which is actually still uh, going through a little bit of a down period. Mm-hmm. But this was the start of it. He said, we're now faced with going 
from running the most important meeting of the firm from four times a year to two times a year. That Ooh. most important meeting is called the quarterly business review. <laughs> if you aren't having it quarterly, that's a problem. Yes. Right? Investors are expecting that and you know the business is expecting that. It's a big deal. He says, but I understand that you might be able to help me. Tell me what you can do for me. Sure. So, of course, this gave me a chance to explain what I'd done on so many levels around the globe for the firm and how I could now begin to assist him by facilitating this most important meeting for the firm. He and his top 30 executives around the globe. Hmm. So they went from running two face-to-face around the globe and all the expense that that entails mm-hmm. because they don't travel like you and I do. <laughs> no. their, their, their expenses are a little higher. <laughs> they're exquisite, but they're uh, they add up, particularly on even on a quarterly level between the location, the accoutrements, and the comfort, and the resources Absolutely. needed to execute on the actual meeting. Absolutely. So when we started to add up what I was saving them by running that meeting, it was not a stretch to say that literally me running that meeting twice a year was saving the firm a million dollars real money. So that was uh, the ultimate success for me, being able to run that for that C-level executive and uh, their staff. The, uh, the, the implications have lasted long after I've left the firm. Uh, I started, a before I left, a practice in the firm for facilitation because facilitation done the proper way is what was the secret sauce. It wasn't just running an online meeting. It was having the meeting facilitated and the, the appropriate collaboration. So I started a facilitation practice for the firm before I left that still exists today. They've since gone on with the framework I put in place to win the facilitation impact award this year. And... Hmm. They are doing really well building that out, sustaining what was put in place. Do you find that to be the best proof of a practice that's taught by a leader or brought in by a facilitator when the company or the client or the group in question is able to perpetuate it on their own without influence? Absolutely. So, again, going back to your original question, that leadership that I was able to demonstrate in leading, guiding that entire project – influencing all the stakeholders, mm-hmm. influencing to the highest levels to the point that I began to be the trusted advisor at yet another level for this executive. Uh, absolutely was testimony to, to the leadership and the fact that it's been able to be sustained is testimony to the quality of the work, quality of the product. And when the framework is good, it's sustainable without the original person who brought it in. It's interesting that the CEO came to you. I'm not surprised that the CEO came to you with a specific problem in mind and said, you've solved smaller ones. Now can you solve the big one? And you had written and spoken to me something about something earlier when you had first started working with your mentor, this idea that people would approach you and go, you look like you should know this. So tell me you do and solve my problem. Has that become crucial to building your career, this being willing and able to step up to what people are asking of you in the moment? In many ways, I would say yes. So by by that, I think you're referring to something we refer to as executive presence. Okay. So so the ability to look competent and then to match a look with uh, 
the supporting work product, mm -hmm. the supporting outgrowth of a body of work is what I have always tried to do. And so uh, I, that led me to go and develop a certification, get a certification as a leadership development person who is focusing on executive coaching. And I combine that with the facilitation of workshops to produce a, a leadership development product for clients. Mm. You are also writing a book with your mentor on this topic, yes? I am writing the book, and I'm signing my mentor, but I'm writing it by myself. Okay. <laughs> Let's start with the most obvious question. When did you decide to write the book, or to write a book? Well, if you want the truth, I actually decided to write the book when I joined the National Speakers Association and realized I was one of the only people that didn't have a book. <laughs> I don't have credentials yet. <laughs> yeah, it's it was like almost required, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that I realized even before joining that I had a story to tell, that a lot of wonderful things were happening and that I was an anomaly in many ways. Mm -hmm. You know, Here I am, a gentleman who did not get his degree uh, early on, what most people do. I go back to school. I get my degree as an adult. That equips me to do a different line of work. And then I have these different experiences that were a direct result of being at Northwestern University. Uh, the co collaboration with Bob Dean that mm has -hmm. now lasted over 10 years and the body of work that he and I have produced, it's a compelling story to tell. And that was really what led me to realize I need to document this in one way, shape, or another. It is amazing how often people will live through an experience and not, and not until much later on look at what they've been through and go, there is something of value here for other people if I can find a way to explain and share it. It is. And I think part of the thing that uh, I realized is with Bob and I is oftentimes when people look at Bob and I, you would not probably think that we are as good friends as we are. You know, we are from two different generations, mm -hmm. but yet two different generations, two different personal narratives, two different backgrounds, but we have put together a dynamic duel, a partnership, a relationship that we can finish each other's sentences in many cases. We walk into a client engagement. In fact, we were on one just the other day and it's just amazing how well we work together. Hmm. And it really is a case study and the ability for young people to work with their senior uh, experienced uh, peers and or colleagues and perform miracles, perform magic. I was reading an article the other day that talked about how many uh, senior executives or senior leaders are frustrated by their younger peers because the ideal is that younger yes. people want to run them out of the workplace. <laughs> it's a... They're frustrated that younger people are in the workplace and they have brought in these new ideas and ways of dressing and all these different things. And Work so, cycles and all that and lifestyle changes that they want to be implemented. Yeah. So the ideal of rather than be frustrated but to collaborate and produce amazing partnerships, I think is a story in itself that's worth telling. I was about to ask you about that because it's become easy. Not that it's new by any means. You can go back to Socrates complaining about the next generation that's supplanting him. And I think my favorite is his rant about the written word and how it will destroy the world because people will have to read things and no longer be taught them person to person. But it is easy to look at the incoming generation and go, I don't understand them, nor do I want to. I'm retiring in five years. You know, let this be the next leader's issue. And in a way, what you're saying is that this book is a love letter to how millennials and their senior partners should work together. 
how this opportunity exists right now for this young generation with the digital savvy and the older generation with the soft skills, the wisdom and experience to know how to make use of it and to open doors. Indeed. In fact, uh, I have a friend, uh, she actually specializes in this subject, so I wouldn't dare go into her area, but mm-hmm. I, she and I just recently met each other uh, over the last uh, eight months or so, so I've become a big fan of her you work. You are absolutely- interviewing her for the book, aren't you? You know what? I hadn't thought to do that, but perhaps I should. This is a good idea. <laughs> and two things strike me, and I say this because my background is in writing and editing and putting stories together, but when you tell me how this this story how this story is, I am looking forward to hearing your words and his on how this relationship forms. And I want to see on the page almost the two of you being able to finish each other's sentences and arguments and points. And I don't know if that's what you're doing, but that's what came to my mind the moment you described it. No, I was referring to a young lady named Anna Liana. She is right. the expert on generations. And so her, her book and her framework around that is something that's pretty phenomenal that I really enjoy. In fact, I sent her, uh, I told her about what I'm doing with this. And I actually shared photos with her that will be in the book of Bob and I. Okay. I Bob got a pretty good kick out of this because when I was working on one of the chapters, I decided, you know what? We need some images. And so I sent him some of the images of us through the years. He got a kick out of this because his response to me was, wow, you've got all my jackets. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All his blazers, you know, his full array. But I'm like, is that what you took out of these photos I sent you? (laughs) (laughs) So these photos are all going to be in the book and that response has to be there too. Yes, those will be in the book. There's no question about it. But yeah, so it's a testimonial to just really the value because really, you know, I'm going to be teaching a course on knowledge management very soon here uh, for the Association of Talent Talent Development. Mm -hmm. And this issue of knowledge management, this issue of being able to transfer knowledge to from a senior executive or a senior leader or experienced person in the workforce to the newer individuals coming in is a very important thing, especially with the way the workforce is aligned today. For the first time, we have five different generations in the workforce at the same time. It's incredible. That's never happened before. No. So the ability to you know, push this knowledge down, share it abundantly, it benefits everyone, and it quite frankly becomes a competitive advantage. You are able to see the evolution of a company and what has been done over a century or more through the eyes of individuals who still work there or participate and engage in the company's mission and vision. You are able to... PB&J, we like to say that we are over 100 years of experience in every bite because our oldest partner is 83. I'm the youngest at 33. And our worlds are very different at 50 years apart. But that breadth of experience allows us to walk into pretty much any situation and go, we understand where you're coming from and the challenges you face. I had a client at 73 who inherited his father's company and sat down there going, do I start a new company effectively at this age or do I sell it knowing that certain things have depreciated? And it's a set of challenges we're facing now that we have not looked at as we have not experienced as much because people are living longer, but also this unique opportunity. There's also this unique opportunity, like you said, to engage in an actual conversation and make sure that this wisdom is not lost, that it is transferred, that it is applicable to what is being done now. Absolutely.
where comedy and commentary collide. Thunder Talk brings a unique variety show style twist to the fandom podcast genre. We drop music from some of today's hottest up-and-coming artists. We discuss topics of social and political relevance and deliver our sideways take on the world at large. If stand-up comedy, NPR, the Millennium Falcon, and classic MTV had a baby, it would be Thunder Talk. Thunder Talk is part of the ESO Network. Find us at thundertalk.org and on all podcasting platforms. What inspires you to write? <laughs> well, I don't always write as I should. In the okay. perfect world, I would spend 20 to 30 minutes writing every single day. <laughs> and the reason for yeah. that is it actually engages a different part of the brain and it helps with a clear thought process, sense of structure, and just overall articulation, I believe. It's a, I've heard it described as a dialogue with the self. That's one way to do it. And I'll tell you something. One reason why many of us probably don't write as we should is, I don't know about you, you strike me as a person who did what he was supposed to, but a couple of times I got in trouble in school and my <laughs> teacher used writing as a punishment. Oh, God, that's terrible. <laughs> I will not write. You have to write that a hundred times. <laughs> yeah, so. So sometimes I think that kind of sticks, this, this post-traumatic syndrome that we have with, about writing. And so as we get uh, to be adults, we don't write. But I'll tell you something else. Um, a friend of mine, uh, Bob and I, we actually run this course called Writing Clearly. Right. And the whole idea is that it's not just about writing uh, anymore, about legibly, but being able to, to write correctly because we text now. So everything <laughs> is LOL you know, and all these little shortcuts. Yes. Right? We don't really write anything out anymore. So I think the other reason for me to want to write is to make sure that I don't lose some of the things that I've worked so hard to develop over the years. Now, there's a young lady who I've been listening to a lot, and I'm really impressed with her work. Her name is Jane Anderson. She's a speaker who's a part of the NSA as well. Mm-hmm. And I look at some of the things that she does, and she wrote something the other day. She posted, and she talked about how much time we are now spending online in endeavors of social media or just how much time we spend uh, in entertainment and watching TV or in movies and such. And she says that sometimes when we wake up in the morning, we're so in tune to social media and watching television that before we create, we consume. She says, stop consuming and start creating. And I went, wow, that hit me like a ton of bricks. It is easy. I am working with a client now who is restructuring his business, and he's a voracious researcher, and he loves to write these well-thought-out pieces, but he is at this point of trying to figure out how to express his new business model and realizing that he hasn't been able to do so yet because the thoughts are there, the ideas are there, the consuming is occurring, but the synthesis of that, of making it become his own words and thoughts and ideas, hasn't had time to occur yet. Indeed. In fact, there was an article in the New York Times just today, coincidentally, about our outgoing president, uh, President Obama. Mm-hmm. And it, it drew a comparison to him and President Lincoln. And it talked mm. about one of the things, in fact, the title of the article, I believe, was something about what has allowed him to survive the last eight years. And it talked about his reading habit. And he's a voracious reader yes. and how that provided an escape. But it, it made a point, And it said that he taught himself how to write and it became a way to define himself and communicate his ideas to the world. Well, I'm certainly not President Obama or President Lincoln, but it allows all of us, writing allows all of us to uniquely position ourselves as experts in our area of domain.
I think, and I've asked a lot of writers this, the typical answer for why we write is to be understood in some fashion. But it doesn't occur unless someone else is there to read it, and unless you have managed to express it, as you said, clearly enough for other people to go, yes, I agree or disagree, but I see what you mean. And I do think, I, I was reading through his farewell speech, and it struck me as someone who studied speech construction and all the signposting techniques, both how simple it was, but in that simple, in that simplicity, how elegantly he laid out his argument, everything he's been trying to work toward, whether he succeeded or not, everything he's wanted to achieve and what we need to continue doing. And that idea of democracy needing participation to live, and that it is never a thing that requires passivity. Mm, I like that. And I went, it feels like these are things you've been trying to say and are only now in this farewell moment encapsulating or conveying to us as clearly as they could be. And in a sense, partly, you would think partly he had to live through making sense of that. They say the presidency shapes and ch or changes the shape of a man. And you can see that regardless of the time or the place. They go in with a state of mind and a state of being, but the circumstances and what they encountered there force them to reflect, to contemplate. Well, I was going to say that now that you have quoted that, I really like what, what that, that portion that you cited. And it reminds me that I was traveling and I saw the first 10 minutes and then I had to run to a, uh, engagement there for dinner. Mm -hmm. uh, a group of us were getting together, uh, from the association. And so I missed the farewell speech. And so I have to go back and watch that now or read that because what you just read, it was quite compelling. I would recommend it. It's something given what you're writing on that would be worth an analysis or taking or taking a look at, particularly since, like with uh, King and Lincoln both, they spent so much time working on the message itself, on the narrative, and on walking people through an understanding of what had been experienced and how to make sense of it from now on. It's an art form. Even Eisenhower's art essay on and speech on why nuclear reduction is so needed. You you look at some of these speeches and you see that in a sense that they are the crystallization of thought of things struggled with, and in a sense your book is that as well. It's something both your personal journey of how you have built this career and at least this is what comes to me as I listen of how you've built this career and how you wish to change it going forward, and how you have seen the value of working with people who are your seniors, who have knowledge that they can transfer to you, and how, in turn, you can now pass that on to the reader. So I was going to ask you earlier, in developing your career and building to the point where you are, or soon, you know, eventually will be the senior mentor, is there a junior you're looking for, or do you try to spread that opportunity out over the numerous people you'll be teaching and sharing the book with? That's a great question. I do. In fact, just kind of natively, right? I'm a part of a couple of us, uh, member associations. So the Association for Talent Development is one. Uh, the National Speakers Association is another. I work with newer members who are coming into the organization and those others who may uh, ask for advice. So I work with people on a one-on-one -on -one mentor mentee relationship where I share my wisdom and experience that I have gained over the years. I do it in other ways where uh, we have these groups that we refer to as a mastermind group where it's a meeting of the minds of mm. people who are seeking to help each other reduce duplication of efforts 
and uh, have a greater strength in numbers and help each other through collaboration. And then also uh, the work that I do natively as a coach uh, enables me to do that. So there are times where I offer my services pro bono where I am not charging a fee. And mm-hmm. so in those areas, I seek to give back uh, into a variety of nonprofit organizations largely when I offer my coaching services as a mentor or as a coach. As you work on the book, as you define and clarify this story, what would you say you've learned? What would I say I've learned? Interesting. Um, I think probably the first thing is <laughs> writing can be cathartic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I find that perhaps the more I write, the I won't say the better I get. I hope I, I hope I'm getting better and developing. But I think also that there's a there's a there's a rhythm that I that develops. Much like reading daily, writing daily or writing regularly uh, produces a, a certain rhythm that you don't have when you don't write. And I say cathartic from the standpoint of it allows me to kind of flesh out thoughts and to relive things that I have forgotten about. Mm. And so I think about what it does for me when I'm reliving these thoughts as I'm writing them down. And I just think about how hopefully it will affect my reader when they pick it up and they read it as well. What do you hope they will take away having finished your book? If there were one thing only that they had learned, what would that be? That there are more than one ways to define leadership and that being an influencer is perhaps the best form of leadership that anyone can engage in because it doesn't require title, position, and it's not contingent on what someone else gives you or does for you. In a sense, it's an opportunity available to all. Yes. Who wish to apply. We didn't touch upon this fully before, but when you were talking about your time with your mentor and that period of growth, you said there were some phenomenal experiences that occurred. Are there any stories from then you want to share or from more recently? Things that might be in the book or that you want to keep exclusive? (laughs) No, pretty much the the two stories I share with you uh, are probably the most notable. I think if I had spent a little bit more time uh, thinking about some more uh, I could probably fine-tune to share with you. But the two that stand out the most are probably the most transformational for me in that, uh, again, in the the firm that we worked directly with the CEO uh, of the executive search firm and then later on with the executive at the oil and gas firm, those were some pretty incredible stories because obviously you don't just – walk into the CEO's office. <laughs> no. <laughs> so to end up there, it's, it's quite an accomplishment. And then to have that conversation, to work with them one-on-one, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a privilege that I will always appreciate and esteem. I think uh, on the horizon now, there's some other C-level relationships that I'm working on. You mentioned that you and I met at the C-suite uh, event. Mm-hmm. There's more to come on that. Some of that stuff is still on the wraps. But the ideal is we are looking at other ways as individuals and as a group to uniquely support those that are in the C-suite, to work with those that uh, I think we identified there are literally, it used to be the CEO, CFO, COO, right? Chief Executive Officer, Mm -hmm. Chief Financial Officer, Chief Operating Officer were the only C titles. Well, now... I think in that meeting, we, we, we talked about that there were probably close to 30, right? <laughs> CIO, CMO, oh, yeah. CF. Yeah. I, I'm blanking out, yeah. But I remember because there had a point in conferences I'd go to where people go, I'm a C-blanco, and I'd go, that's not a title I was aware of. 
But I believe you, and it's good to meet you. Exactly. So the ideal is there are senior executives running firms of all sizes across the globe, mm-hmm. and we are interested in specifically working with those chief officers with that title and maybe one level below of a certain price point that we can offer services to. And the services are being offered because we think we have something uniquely tailored to them that they need. And the ideal is that uh, just as I think Jeff put it very nicely, when we walk into our favorite restaurant or our favorite club that we go to or our favorite health club or our favorite uh, association club that we may belong to there are certain people that cater us and they know exactly what to bring and when they know exactly how we like it mm-hmm. a customized service and so that's what we are are trying to make sure that we offer clients and that we have developed ourselves so much so that we know what the client needs and we anticipate their needs before they've even asked for it and we're giving them value that's how you sustain it. Do you think with this proliferation of data, big data and firms and the like that mine it and try to provide insight accordingly, we're going to see a push toward more concierge-like services? There's no question. Uh, you look at Amazon.com, uh, the best example of that, the anticipation. You purchase one thing and, and you look up uh, a couple seconds later, other people who brought this also purchased, right? And so that's just becoming the expectation now. People want a tailored experience. They want you to anticipate their needs, meet their needs, and exceed their expectations. That is no longer considered something that's a nice to have, especially at the sea level. They are demanding it. You must deliver it, and you must do it consistently. Why do you think that is? Is it a matter of time, or simply that they just don't? Well, essentially, is it a matter of time that they do not have the time to explain everything they need to you? You just need to know it. I think that's part of it. Okay. Uh, I think the other part of it is just an expectation of a respect for uh, mm. where, where they are in an organization. You you know that you don't. You you have a finite amount of time to. Uh, speak with them, to deal with them, to interact with them, and then they have a finite amount of time in terms of what they are going to consume. So they need to be kept abreast of the latest industry trends. They need to know what when they're making a decision, what are the options out there that are viable, but they don't have enough, they don't have time to necessarily consume everything. They need people that are going to distill the most important things down for them so that they are consuming just the smallest amount as possible to make the most effective decisions. In a sense, the greatest value possible in that given time or moment. Indeed. Okay. There are two pieces of advice, one from Martin Luther King and one from Nick Morgan that you shared with me. Do you want to read those aloud for the audience? I think they're quite useful. Sure. There was... uh I think when I was talking about Martin Luther King, I was referring to something that I saw today, being that it is Martin Luther King Day. I saw something that was in my feed that I thought was uh, quite appropriate. And the first was, if you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. But whatever you do, you have to keep moving forward. And so that's always been my uh, model. Mm. I didn't I didn't put it as eloquently or in those words, but that is one of the things that helps me keep moving, keep pursuing a goal, and not to rest on my laurels, not to sit still, but to continue to be uh, in forward motion, moving toward a goal. So for me, that meant redefining my career. 
that meant reinventing myself as an individual. So while I will always be an information technology professional at heart who is looking for technology solutions and everything that he does, I am now a leadership development professional. And that is who I am today, and that is the service that I offer to people. I like what Nick Morgan said, and that's, I think, what you were referring to earlier as well. Nick said, the only reason to give a speech is to change the world. <laughs> and I love that. Yes. Because in my work as an executive coach or as a person facilitating meetings, courses, workshops, or giving a professional speech, my goal is to change people and organizations that ultimately lead to change in the world for the better. I like that. Where can our audience members find you next? Well, I am all over the internet, so my websites and my social media presence, but I'm giving a speech, my next big speech, I guess, is going to be in April, April the 20th at the 2017 Texas Diversity Leadership Council. The title of that speech is to uh, build, be, and benefit from leadership development. In between that, um, I've got a couple of clients I'll be doing some work for. I'll be doing and facilitating a board retreat uh, for a firm, uh, doing a knowledge management course for the Association of Talent Development. And I'm pretty excited about a new initiative working with a uh, firm on the East Coast to help them with their corporate university using a proprietary governance framework that we've introduced for them. So really excited about that. Interesting. I want to know more about that when you can. <laughs> so you're online. Where are the best places for people to reach you on the internet? On the internet, www.eddieturnerllc.com is my uh, corporate website. I'm on Facebook. You can follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, follow me on Instagram. And so those are the primary outlets uh, where folks can find me and my content. Thank you again, Eddie, for taking time today to talk with us about your work, your book, and your vision of how leadership should be in the future. Well, Jared, I thank you for taking the time to have me on uh, your program. What a delight, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. So that's all for tonight. If you like what you hear and you want to show you as a born, you can subscribe to us at patreon.com slash Diaries. That's with a Y for a dollar or more. There are all kinds of rewards, including access to our online workshop and Discord. Of course, if you have a story of your own that you'd like to share or have us revise, you can write to us and my name, dot my last, and give me tires. See you all next time. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.